everyone be seated and and we can begin the second conference. <coughs> it's important to note the arguments that SCOTUS presents for the Immaculate Conception are crucial to the defense or the correct understanding of his entire theological system, which centers on the absolute predestination of Christ, the absolute primacy of Jesus, and implicitly Mary. What he has done with the famous arguments that Father Alexandro set forth so nicely, nicely is to uh, uh, do what the locutions call a uh, retort. It's kind of a logical revolution. Take the arguments of your adversary and use them to prove your own case. But naturally, those arguments do not state the whole reality of the Immaculate Conception. The entire mystery of the Immaculate Conception is not fully explained with those arguments. The basis for Scotus's ultimate explanation, or his success, is to be found in his discussion of the, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the predestination of Christ to, glo uh, to glory, glory and the orderly way in which uh, this includes also our election in Christ and through his merits, and then in a special way, our, our, our lady. Once that becomes, as it were, the obviously more plausible accepted position, then follows, as it were, a kind of radical revolution in how to look at our salvation and redemption called the soteriological theory of Scotus, that theory of salvation in the Greek. So, uh, uh, soteria et logos, study of salvation, is all that soteriology means. All these fancy, but uh, all, the, all the physicians and the doctors and surgeons use Greek words to talk about uh, what's wrong with you and what will cu uh, cure you. And you'll be surprised how ordinary those things are when you translate the Greek back into ordinary English. Uh, anyway, don't be. Uh, uh, but anyway, Father Chikin, who is uh, was unable to be here because of the fact uh, that he is the secretary of the organization that is sponsoring the Mariological Congress in Lourdes at this time, and. Uh, fact that the Holy Father is going to make an appearance, uh, appear, uh, appearance there. Naturally, the Secretary of Palmy has to be there, too. Anyway, he's presented a very good conference um, and outlines the vision of the work of salvation, which emerges from a consideration of Christ, uh, Christ as absolutely predestined. Uh, the reason for the incarnation is the love of, love of God, that he is predestined a man, the man who is God, uh, God uh, to the highest possible, possible, uh, possible glory. That is the point that has to be uh, has, uh, has to be seen here. Now I'll let Father Jerome read uh, this uh, presentation. He's one of the collaborators of Father Chakin uh, in, in, in Rome. Marian soteriology, according to Blessed Scotus, the Immaculate Conception as a metaphysical basis of mediation. Blessed John Doscotus, cantor of the word incarnate and of his immaculate mother, isn't the church a lamp ever burning brightly, never consuming the inexhaustible wisdom flowing from the contemplation of the mystery of God? Today as well, his theology continues to be an object of study and admiration for all who have engaged in researching the truth. Scotus is one of the little plans of Francis who, nourished by the spirit of the Seraphic Father, have learned how to bear abundant fruits of knowledge and good works. Scotus is a saint to be rediscovered 
for the sake of the beauty of the road he has opened to the glory God wishes to bestow on his children. The road leading to God and bringing God into history is Mary, the mother of God, the Immaculate Conception. In this study, it will be possible to throw light only on a few aspects of Scottish soteriology where the Immaculate Mother's role of mediatrix and co-redemptrix is involved. Scotus has not left us homilies or other kinds of spiritual writings. We find his thoughts only in scholastic treatises and hence in a formal linguistic style proper to the university world. Even if quantitatively he did not write much on the Virgin Mother, Scotus offers us a theological system pointing to conclusions at once very clear and very fruitful for a deeper grasp of the figure of Mary. Franciscan Soteriology. The New Testament records that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gave witness to how in Jesus alone and in no other is there any salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. The very name of Jesus means Yahweh saves. For this reason, when writing to the friars assembled in chapter, St. Francis showed a special devotion to that holy name as he greeted them. Quote, in him who has redeemed us and washed us in his precious blood, on hearing his name, adore him prostrate on the ground with reverent fear. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High, is your name, which is blessed forever. Amen. End of quotation. Particularly noteworthy is the fact that whereas traditional soteriology does not generally distinguish the, title, the titles Savior and Redeemer, instead the Saint of Assisi does not consider these synonyms. This is a point established in the detailed study of Christology of St. Francis by Father Norbert Guyen van Kahn. Above all, the Seraphic Father clearly did not care to disjoin the persons of the Trinity during their activity throughout the history of salvation. For him, it is evident that everything comes about by the will of the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is received as Creator, as Redeemer, as Savior. Three titles linked to three distinct moments of the divine activity. God has created us, redeemed us, and saved us. While creation and redemption have already occurred, salvation bears on future glory the final end for which creation exists. If the redemption has been realized by means of the cross, salvation will be the consummation of the entire divine plan. Francis does not linger over speculative arguments. The Franciscan school, however, will develop the doctrine of its master in such wise that a plan of salvation will no longer be customarily known as teaching about redemption realized by Christ by his death of vicarious expiation on the cross. Instead, it will come to be known as the explanation of a divine human journey begun with creation, continued despite the fall of Adam during Old Testament times up to the incarnation, the moment, properly speaking, redemptive of the death and resurrection of Christ, and then in a successive form consisting in the sanctification of mankind 
in expectation of glorious coming of the Son of God. The redemption is but a moment of this wider history. Rather, the Franciscan masters distinguish the mystery of salvation from the mystery of redemption. This distinction was inspired by a text of tradition, the Creed of Nicaea Constantinople, where it affirms that Christ became incarnate for us men and for our salvation. It was also inspired by a biblical text from the letter of St. Paul to the Galatians, chapter 4. Quote, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent his son born of the woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. End of quotation. If the letter speaks of a fullness of time, it means that time was initially empty and only progressively came to be filled. To understand what came to fill it, it is enough to read the account of the Annunciation. The angel said to Mary, Rejoice, full of grace. Clearly then, time was filled by the gift of grace. There had been a development whereby mankind had become capable by the fullness of grace to conceive the word of God. This is the moment when God sent his son to assume human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her who is the apex in the journey of faith of all mankind. Paul's text is explicit. According to some biblicists, it should be read thus, God had sent his son born of the woman that we might receive the adoption of sons, but born under the law that those who were under the law might be redeemed. This reading makes plain the two mysteries. The born of the woman expresses the mystery of salvation. God had created us to become his sons in the son who became incarnate and would have bestowed on us his glory. The born under the law expresses the mystery of redemption. That son who'd have sacrificed himself for us, who had fallen into sin to reopen for us the road to full sonship in glory. St. Francis had intuited how the mystery of salvation was far broader than that of redemption and could not be identified with one particular project involved in it. Building on the foundations of its master, the Franciscan school erected a theology of salvation history in which that would emerge a perfect understanding of Christ as one mediator, savior, and redeemer. Jesus is the son predestined from all eternity to become man, so as in himself to unite all creation with God. At the side of Christ, the Franciscans recognized his mother, her beauty, her role, her necessity in the accomplishment of divine projects. Franciscan Foundations of Scotistic Mariology. The history of Franciscan theology shows how the absolute predestination of the Incarnation and the Immaculate Conception are the two theses which have brought about new orientation and spiritual conquest in defining the specific physiognomy of the theological school of the Sons of St. Francis. Indeed, one may say that no sector of Franciscan theology and spirituality has been so deeply influenced 
by thought of Scotus as the Marian. But one must also recognize that the mystical intuitions of St. Francis stand at the base of Scotus' thoughts. The saint of Assisi grasped that God had revealed himself as light and as love. Hence, a man needed to be enlightened that he might be able to know and to be inflamed by love that he might love. As principle of all is God experienced as supreme good, for whom comes every good, and whose desire is that of coming to dwell in man. It is for this reason that, first, Christ dwelling in the bosom of the Father came to dwell in the bosom of Mary. Second, for him were created all things. Third, the Son of God was given to us, born for us, and died for us in a way to be followed by us. Fourth, to him who walks in this way is given the promise that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon him, and that he will make his abode with him, and they will be sons of the Heavenly Father. Fifth, and they will become brides, brothers and mothers of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Francis of Assisi, Mary clearly has become model for the indwelling of God in man and in history. Man himself is called to participate in the divine maternity, in becoming the place where God takes up his abode. Hence, Francis understood that together with Christ, one must follow Mary as well. A little brother Francis wished to follow the life and poverty of our Most High Lord Jesus Christ and of his Most Holy Mother, and persevere in this until the end. Francis also explains the method to be followed in seeking God. The friars, who dedicate themselves to walking in the way of truth, it pleases me that you teach sacred theology to the brothers, namely those engaged in theological research, must not forget the way of beauty, which is that illuminated and inflamed by the spirit of prayer and devotion. But all this becomes concrete through the way of charity, that of good works, after the example of Mary. Quote, We are his mothers when we carry him in our hearts and in our bodies with love and with pure and sincere consciences, and we beget him through holy works which must shine as examples for others. End of quotation. Scotus Soteriology, Christ the Beginning and End of Creation. Scotus had before him the mystical experience of St. Francis, already lived and commentated by various authors, in particular Alexander of Ailes and St. Bonaventure. Contrary to this last, who considered Christ the primary object of theology, Scotus, like St. Francis, indicated the Trinity as point of departure for any theological discussion. Instead, he is in agreement with the seraphic doctor in defining the two fundamental principles of biblical revelation. In the Old Testament, God had revealed his existence, I am who am. And in the New Testament, God revealed his essence, God is love, Deus caritas est. Hence, in God, the subtle doctor identifies essence and supreme good. By his very essence, God is love, the lectio per excentium. 
Given then that he is the being whose free activity is guided by an infinitely perfect wisdom, he is thus so free as to act of himself without any regulation from without himself, for the simple reason that he is a norm unto himself, that he acts only in conformity with his essence without ever contradicting himself. But because his essence is love, God acts always out of love and in harmony with his infinite love. When, therefore, he acts ad extra, his action is carried out in a manner which could not be more free, more orderly, and motivated by his greatest love. Hence, quote, God first loves himself, and second, loves himself in other beings. And this is chaste love. End of quotation. In God, there is above all love, which circulates within the Trinity, between the divine persons, and which tends to expand, to move toward others. It is the very heart of biblical revelation. God is the source of love. He is primarily a God who loves. But since a God alone loves God, God desires also to be loved by others, co-lovers. He wishes that others have in themselves his love, and for this reason eternally predestines who must love him adequately and infinitely with a love from without himself. Scotus introduces the concept of predestination, linking it to the love of God. In willing to love, he projects those who will make up his family and who therefore will participate in this love for his. This is an exact interpretation of the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with the spiritual blessings on high in Christ. As he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and immaculate in his sight in charity, predestinating us to the adoption of children through Jesus Christ. First Goddess. Christ is he who realized the possibility that man might become a co-lover with God. Hence, God willing, quote, to be loved by him who can love him in the highest degree. I'm speaking of a being outside to him, that is, a created being. Eventually foresees the hypostatic union of this human nature, which must love him immensely. End of quotation. In effect, Scholars following the footsteps of Alexander of Els contemplates the mystery of the Incarnation in the light of the Pauline text affirming the universal primacy of Christ, center, scope, and end of creation, rather than the contrary thesis of the great scholastic masters who, accept, who accented only its redemptive experts. The opinion of St. Thomas Aquinas was that, quote, it is better to say that the work of the Incarnation was willed by God as a remedy for sin, such that had sin not existed, there would have been no Incarnation. End of quotation. This had become a commonly held view against which scholars objected. Quote, had the fall been the reason for Christ's predestination, it would follow that the greatest work of God, Summum Opus Dei, would totally have been occasioned because the glory of all other created beings is not as great intensively as that of Christ. 
It seems quite irrational that God would have omitted a work so great, tantum opus, had Adam performed a good work, namely, had Adam not sinned. End of quotation. Indeed, the incarnation makes evident that, and I quote, in the universe of God's works, there is no other work of pure mere grace except the sole incarnation of the Son of God. End of quotation. The coming of Christ was not motivated by any merit on the part of creatures. Hence, it is, quote, truly to be ascribed to the mercy and goodness of God alone. End of quotation. The incarnation is the manifestation of the supreme love of God for mankind, whereby he chose to expand his love so as to embrace all creatures. His love could so expand in creation only through him who could love in the highest degree. Hence God, quote, in the fourth place, foresaw the union of that nature which must love him in the highest degree, even had no one fallen. God's first thoughts concerning things ad extra was the union of the divine nature with the human nature. Hence, quote, before any consideration of merit and demerit, he foresaw that Christ would be united to him in the unity of person. End of quotation. In this union, Christ became mediator, one by reason of the hypostatic union between the divine and human natures. In this manner, it is all of and mind, all of and mankind, which in Christ becomes partaker of divine life. Christ is the head of all creation which lives, thanks to his mediation. In him all creation has found its com complement because all things were created by him and in him. He is before all, and by him all things subsist. In this insight, Scotus follows the Hebrew tradition which understands the beginning in Genesis. In the beginning God created heaven and earth as follows. He is the beginning who is the wisdom which God created. Creation, then, exists in view of that same beginning. Christ, then, is the wisdom of God, the very end of every man, because the Father in him chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and immaculate in his sight in charity, predestining us to be his adopted sons through Jesus Christ. For Scotus, the sonship, entails the gift of glory which was ordained for Christ in the Incarnation. But by reason of sin, this gift of glory was postponed to the Paschal event, to his resurrection, given that in becoming man, he took upon himself the sin of mankind. Hence, quote, In a fifth moment, God foresaw the mediator who came to suffer and redeem his people. He would not have come as mediator to suffer and redeem if no one had first sinned, nor would the glory of his flesh have been deferred had there not been men to redeem. Rather, Christ would immediately have been glorified. End of quotation. In the redemption, Scotus sees another manifestation of the supreme love of God. It is a good greater than incarnation itself, because with it, the Redeemer exercised the maximal degree of his mediation, even if it had been preordained subsequently to the Incarnation. But the redemption, 
was not the cause of the Incarnation, but only a consequence of it. Christ is the beginning and end of creation, because all creatures would have found in his coming their fulfillment of their glory. That fulfillment, by reason of sin, was postponed to the end of times, when Christ would return to transfigure all things. Clearly, the theology of scholars on this theme is in harmony with and completes what St. Francis of Assisi had believed concerning God the Creator, Redeemer, and Savior. Mary, Mediatrix, and Co-Redemptrix are the side of the most perfect Savior and Redeemer. For Scotus, Christ is the center of creation. He is the Savior because he brings mankind to the highest degree of perfection in filial adoption on the part of God, who creates through love in order to diffuse his love. And because in mankind created in his image and likeness, he finds so many co-lovers with whom he can diffuse and expand his love. Freedom in human nature implies the possibility of sin. This is why the man and the woman did not pass their test and fell in original sin. God, however, did not abandon his plan, but decreed that the Savior should also be redeemer of a fallen mankind. He alone, by reason of the hypostatic union, could redeem mankind. In Christ there exists the fullness of the Godhead and also the fullness of humanity. For this reason, he is the one most perfect mediator. How could scholars demonstrate this perfection of Christ? By the Immaculate Conception, the highest degree of perfection which Christ exercised as mediator and the gift he acquired for his mother. She is the woman whom St. Francis salutes with the titles of Holy Lady, All Holy Queen, Mother of God, Mary. To these he adds, You, in whom there was and is all fullness of grace and all goods. The saint of Assisi recognized that Mary has always been full of grace. He desired to follow Jesus and Mary because in those two he perceived the models of authentic human life. Jesus, the man full of grace, and Mary, the woman full of grace, who, as Scotus affirms, was never the enemy of God because she had been, quote, chosen by the most holy heavenly father and consecrated by him with his most holy beloved son and with the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. End of quotation. The existence of Mary is linked principally to the divine choice which from all eternity projected her to be the person through whom the word of God would take human form. To understand the role of the virgin on the side of the sun, it is necessary to begin with the concept of predestination as Scotus explains this. He maintains, above all, that Christ was not merely foreseen together with all the elect before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians chapter 1 teaches. Christ is also the first chosen by the Father. Scotus expressly states, quote, who desires a perfect order must first will that that which is closest to the end. End of quotation. From this it follows that God, being orderly in his thoughts and action, 
thought first of no other but him who is closest to him, namely the Son made man, the man full of grace. Logically, one may affirm that the human person next close to the end after Christ is her who had been chosen to be the mother of the Son who became man, the woman full of grace, Mary. Consequently, disciples of Scotus, starting with John the Basilis, began to include in the predestination of Christ his mother as well. This line of reasoning was taken up and consecrated in the bowl of Inefabilis Deus when he states, quote, God having predestined by one and the same decree the origin of Mary and of the incarnation of divine wisdom. End of quotation. Mary, therefore, is found next to Christ from the very beginning. She is associated with him in the plan of universal salvation. At this point, it is of interest to note that this theory is supported by biblical and rabbinic tradition. The man and the woman formed from a soul flesh. According to rabbinic tradition, the text of Genesis chapter 1, versicle 27, should be interpreted as the account of the creative, creative act of a single being endowed simultaneously of male and female attributes. Quote, God created man to his image. To his image God created him. Male and female he created him. End of quotation. Here, therefore, is found the idea of the formation of Adam, which means from the earth, as a single nature which, in the account of Genesis chapter 2, comes to be divided into Ish, man, and Isha, woman. This theory is supported by Jesus when he says, From the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be in one flesh. Therefore they are not two, but one flesh. This concept is quite able to justify the intimate union of Christ and Mary, of the flesh of Christ, which is the flesh of Mary. Scotus showed how the incarnation of the Word came about, not through the passive role of the Virgin, but through an acceptance and a physical activity whereby she came with her ascent to bring about the coming of the Son of God. Mary then, by her active participation, is the human person responsible for the incarnation. For this reason, St. Francis has a very special love for her, because she had made the Lord of Majesty our brother, and therefore he took her as advocate of his order. Quite clearly, Mary's active participation, enabling Jesus to realize the Father's plan, is the basis for Mary's role as mediatrix at the side of the mediator. Scotus explains that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man by reason of the hypostatic union. In this union, an ontological bond is effected between God and creatures, such that Christ becomes by right mediator between God and those same creatures, because he is the visible image of the invisible God, insofar as he stands in perfect relation with God, and at the same time, he is the firstborn of all creation, insofar as he is in relation with all creatures. Christ's mediation is not conditioned by sin, as St. Thomas thought. 
and therefore only a moral mediation reconciling enemies. Priscotus, Christ mediation is a natural mediation in the metaphysical sense because it is the union of two extremes, God and man. Christ, then, is the one mediator precisely because there exists no other who has this double reality, to be God-man, in virtue, in virtue of the hypostatic union. But in so far as he is man, Jesus is the first predestined and the anointed of God. He is the man full of grace who possesses the fullness of two bonds with God, one natural and one moral. He becomes the very source of the grace he diffuses and which he makes participate all those who receive this gift. If then men have been foreknown to be co-Adamites with God, and of God clearly this love, gift of grace, circulates through Christ among men and through the humanity of Christ returns to the Father. All those who share Christ's grace can become mediators of this gift. But these mediations, touching on sanctifying grace, stem from Christ, a gift given only to someone who belongs to Christ, and through him returns to the Father. None of these other mediations is superior to or greater than the grace belonging to Christ. Now, according to Scotus, the person closest to the end is the person who most benefits from it. And we know that the creature closest to Christ is his mother. Logically, then, she is believed to have been the first to have benefited, and the person to have most greatly benefited of Christ's grace through his mediation. Hence, Mary is the full of grace. She was filled with this gift, and so became capable of diffusing it, of transmitting it to others. Mary, who in virtue of her motherhoods, was predestined to be closest to Christ and to be the only person with Christ to be full of grace, became her who, like Christ and with him, pours out her fullness of grace on those who draw close to her. At the side of the mediator is the mediatrix, who with him bestows the grace of which she is full. The proof is to be found in the episode of the visitation when Mary, pregnant with Christ, poured out the Holy Spirit on Elizabeth. The Gospel clearly says that her cousin was filled by the Holy Spirit at the sound of Mary's voice. This proves that in that moment it was due to the mediation of the Virgin that the Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth. 2. The woman created to be the house of the man. Genesis chapters, chapter 2, verse 22, recounts that God, quote, built Hebrew bana, the Septuaginta oikodomesen, the rib which he took from Adam into a woman. End of quotation. The words used both in Hebrew and in Greek refers to the construction of a house, Greek oikodomeo. For this reason, the rabbis interpreted the formation of Eve as the will of God that the woman should be understood as the house of the man. In effect, since every human being is born of the woman, she becomes the house of the man until the day of birth. Here, too, according to the Messianic reading, we find justified the Franciscan scotistic theology summarized in the Virgo Ecclesia Facta, 
of Mary, predestined to be mother of the word, who would become incarnate. From the beginning, therefore, the woman had as her mission the responsibility of begetting children in view of the incarnation. Number three, the reap, or the woman at the side of the man. The note should also be made of another Hebrew term, selah, meaning reap. This term might also be translated as side or flank. In effect, the term in Genesis 2, commonly translated as reap, is employed in the Bible with a variety of meanings. The sides of the tabernacle, Exodus, the flanks of the altar, the sides of the Ark of the Covenant, the supports for the walls of the temple, the lateral walls of the temple. The translation, then, of the verse relating how the woman was taken from the reap might also go like this, taken from the side or living flank of the man, taken from the halving of the man. Hence, she has within her the capacity to give life, as the explanation of her name makes plain. Eve means the mother of the living. In this sense, the woman is conceived as she who stands at the side of the man, the complement of the man, so that he might realize the project for which God has destined him, increase and multiply. Plainly, the man cannot increase and beget children without the woman, a point confirmed by the truth that it is not good for man to be alone. The woman thus becomes the helpmate she would stand at the side of man during his earthly life. In a messianic key, here we also perceive in Eve the woman predestined to be the mother and helpmate of Christ. This can especially be seen in the episode of the cross, when John writes, as commonly translated, there stood near beneath the cross of Jesus his mother. End of quotation. It would be more exact, more exact to translate that para, near, as by the side of the crucified. Mary was not simply standing under the cross as a detached spectator. Mary stood by the side of her son in a perfect unity of vocation and of sentiments. She was co-participant of the sufferings of her son. With him she was co-crucified. She is the woman who shared the mission of the man, in this case the Son of God, who at that moment was completing the redemption of the world. Clearly then, in this solemn moment, Mary fulfilled her role, her role as helpmate of the Redeemer and therefore co-redemptrix. The heart, the flesh, the sentiments, the affections of the Virgin are intimately united to those of her son. Jesus and Mary are in that moment a soul flesh, a single unity as when she carried him in her womb. And it is precisely this saving fact which sanctifies the love and union of the human couple. In this bond is rooted the motive for Mary's anticipated redemption in her immaculate conception. Number four. The Bible on original sin. Another aspect of scotistic soteriology is linked to the biblical tradition on the concept of original sin. According to Scotus, original sin is the absence of original justice. 
According to Genesis 1.3.1, at the conclusion of his creative activity, God saw what he had made, and it was very good, beautiful. The Bible teaches that all creation is beautiful because it has been made to be in harmony with the word of God. God said, and so it was done. The Creator spoke his word, and every being commands to be, and all that is in harmony with the word of the Lord is beautiful. The man and the woman who live according to this word are beautiful. This is the biblical concept of original justice, which may be ascribed to the Immaculate Conception. Mary is the woman who comes into existence because from her very origin she is obedient to the word of the Lord. Not without reason, she was greeted by Elizabeth as blessed who have believed because those things shall be accomplished that were spoken to you by the Lord. Page 12, conclusion. Of the scotistic Franciscan teaching on the mediation and co-redemptive work of the Immaculate Virgin, Mary, we have, Immaculate Virgin Mary, we have offered but a few, ex few samples. No Catholic may doubt that the Virgin was chosen by the Trinity for a special mission which places her after Christ between God, of whom she had a unique experience, and the faithful, for whom by the will of Jesus from the cross she is mother, mediatrix, consoler, help, advocate, and co-redemptrix. Mary is a she who more than all others has drunk from the fountains of grace. Hence, she surpasses all in the fullness of her participation in Christ's mediation. Foreknown and willed by the Father as mother of his Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, she was preserved from all stain of sin, and so came to be conceived full of divine grace. For blessed John Descartes and for the children of St. Francis of Assisi, the Virgin is the woman mother who, at the side of and together with the man-god Jesus, cooperated act actively in the salvation and redemption of mankind. Mary acts thus so that every man and every woman of good will can follow in her footsteps to find Christ and to allow themselves to be transformed by his love. Mary is resplendent before us in the beauty of her fullness of grace, rendering her similar in all things to the man Jesus. This cannot obscure the primacy of the man God, who beyond any doubt remains by reason of his hypostatic union the one mediator, savior, and redeemer. Mary is only and totally a creature, but a creature found at the apex of human development, of that saving history where a patient God is found walking on the side of mankind to permit man to divinize himself evermore. Mary is the model for the following of Christ, which permits one to be totally transformed by Christ's gift of grace. For this reason, who seeks Mary finds Christ. Mm -hmm.